0: am a paleo am a, paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. don't you understand am Hey ray I'm a paleo nerd. hello David how do you do sir Ah
1: oh, I'm doing awesome I really am looking forward to another episode of Paleo nerd we're going to go down the deep deep time wormhole
0: the deep time wormhole but uh, actually this week's guest is we're going to be talking about the present and how you know, stuff in the present. I love present. presents.
1: I love yeah, presents. Yeah, we'll,
0: we'll talk about all that good stuff. But, you know, everything's not here by accident. It evolved to be here. So we'll talk yeah. about that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And uh you mentioned to me you went down another rabbit hole of uh, a colleague in my profession.
0: We'll uh, crack on now. It's Nina Conti.
2: Thank you. How lovely. Um, yes, I am a ventriloquist, and I try to say that without shame.
0: I was turned on to Nina Conti by you, sir. You sent me a kind of sick and twisted little uh, <laughs> YouTube video where she's in counseling with her monkey and her shrink. And- yeah. It was the funniest damn thing I've watched, and since then, I've been watching, binging on YouTube videos uh, with my wife and I. Just She's sick, man. Yeah, I she, love her.
1: She's one of the few ventriloquists I really put on a pedestal because she is unique. She's self-depreciating. Or
0: self-deprecating.
1: She's self-deprecating. <laughs> Uh, she's sick. She has a twisted mind. She's perverted.
0: She sounds like she'd be a blast at a cocktail party, or just over to the house for dinner or something, man. But her
1: or uh, the puppet?
0: Well, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I have a thing for monkey, man. Monkey is <laughs> pretty cool. The shrink keeps asking for her to, you know, the next session is only you, Nita. Don't bring the monkey. And then the monkey wants to come on his own. And
1: yeah, oh, it's that brilliant. can't happen. It's brilliant. So. It's brilliant.
0: So yeah. People ask me what's what what am I doing on the show with a ventriloquist and how does the ventriloquism come into the whole thing? And I said, Well, you know, he's not moving his lips the entire time that we're doing this. So it's amazing. It's
1: true. I- I'm not moving my lips, and that would make you the oh,
0: I see what you did. The dummy oh, man. The dummy. Oh.
1: But you know ah. what? Ventriloquism has nothing to do with paleo nerds. It has to do with my love for science, my love for natural history, my love for fossils and dinosaurs, and why are we here and how did we evolve? So that's, that has nothing to do with me sticking my hand up the backside <laughs> of an inanimate object.
0: Yes, Nina has a lot of fun doing that with Monkey as well. You and Chuck and Teddy and all that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, comedy has got to be informed by something. It's, you know, really in- what you guys do and uh, your craft is intelligent. And it's something the world needs, man. You know, a little levity, a little uh, something to help yeah. us all through.
1: You know, I I am extremely blessed that my job is making people laugh by being a grown man who plays with dolls.
0: And I like to think that my little Crayola drawings are helping the world too. <laughs> and my silly little T shirts. But yeah, here we are.
1: Yeah, we have an amazing guest today, and I've read his books, uh, and they kind of changed my life and they changed my point of view on the natural world around us.
0: Absolutely. You're the same. I read we were arguing who uh who read the book first. Beyond words, what animals think and feel and and you've got his latest one, too, and I just picked it up. Uh, the latest one is Becoming Wild.
1: Yeah, How yeah. Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. That's the title.
0: Can I, can I do this, Dave? I have a quote, and I don't want to ask Carl to read this quote, but I, there's just one little paragraph that I read in this new book, and I thought it was really cool, and I thought we could ask him about this topic. But may I, sir? Sure, but Carl who? <laughs> Carl Safina.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Great. Oh, those are his books. We haven't mentioned. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm an amateur at this. All right. But here it goes. A taste for the beautiful exists as a deep capacity, one bequeathed to us through inconceivable ages, shared to varying degrees by many creatures. It seems to me that a sense of the beautiful exists to let living beings feel at home, happy, and alive here on earth. If anything is more miraculous than the existence of life, it is that life has created for itself a sense of beauty. Whoa. Is that not like freaking?
1: And and what book Dude. was that in?
0: <laughs> That's in the new one. That's in uh, oh. uh, Becoming Wild. We're going to meet him online here in moments. I'm pretty excited. Hey, Carl Safina. Welcome to Paleo Nerds. So good to finally meet you. And let me, let me just read off a little intro so our listeners know who you are. Carl Safina is an ecologist and an author of numerous award-winning books about the human relationship with the natural world. His books include Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. That's his latest book. Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. Song for the Blue Ocean, Voyage of the Turtle in Pursuit of Earth's Last Dinosaur. He's the founding president of the Safina Center and is the endowed chair for nature and humanity at Stony Brook University, where my little sister went to school, by the way. And Safina has hosted the PBS series Saving the Ocean. And Carl, we have so many friends in common, it kind of blows me away. It's so good to finally meet you. And
2: Yes, it's a little ridiculous you. that I, I have never previously met you because I, I've had your posters and your art all around for, I, I don't know, since I was uh, two years old or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're about the same uh, vintage. Yeah, You're yes. one year younger than me, but you've been through Southeast Alaska a few times, right? Yeah,
2: a few times.
0: Well, both Dave and I have homes here in Ketchikan. Dave's here occasionally, but, but Carl, I uh, know this is the paleo nerd show. Um, are you kind of a paleo nerd? Um,
2: I wouldn't have said so. So I, I guess it's for the, uh, the listening public to judge. Well, I mean, no,
1: I think we've decided you're a nature nerd.
2: All right. Yeah. I, I'll go with that. I'm definitely an, a nature nerd. Yes.
1: So I must say, Beyond Words, uh, when that came out, pretty much changed my life for the one reason that you forced me to look at the animal world in a different way and that is that we've always compared us to them. Why are animals like us? Are we like them? But you separated it. You said, no, animals are animals. They are them. They are themselves. And how did you come to that first realization? What was the epiphany that pretty much was the basis for that book?
2: Well, you know, when you're five years old, you don't have any built-in biases uh, too well developed yet. And I always just found animals incredibly fascinating. Nobody ever told me that they were less than us or, you know, nobody ever told me to compare them to humans in some way. Um and then well, my father's uh hobby was raising canaries. So even though we lived in a tenement flat in Brooklyn, I could look at birds from a few inches away from my face and see a little tiny tiny eggs and tiny hatchlings and parents taking care of their babies and then when i was seven i demanded that i must raise homing pigeons now <laughs> and my father eventually caved into my requests my insistent requests and we fixed up a shed in my backyard and i got some homing pigeons and when you are when you're breeding pigeons, you stack up boxes. So we used to use uh, like peach crates and apple crates and we had a stack of those on the walls of the shed. And the pigeons decide who they're going to marry and sometimes they have squabbles and sometimes they fight with their neighbors and um, they go out every day and travel around and then they come back and they feed their babies and they go to bed. And across the yard, we lived in our own stack of boxes called an apartment building (laughs) where people decided who they were going to marry. And sometimes they squabbled with their neighbors and they (laughs) left every day. They came back, fed their babies and went to bed. And it just always was obvious to me that the main fundamentals of life and the broad strokes of things, we are all very similar. Then I learned that in fact, we are all literally Related organically in one sweep of evolution and time, I guess that's the paleo part of my nerdiness and um, and then I learned when I was uh, more advanced in my education, I learned that that's all wrong that um, what is yes there yes, there's evolution of course, but um, you can't attribute human thoughts and emotions to other animals. Other animals have no thoughts and other animals have no
0: emotions. Right. And, you cannot be anthropocentric, yes. Uh
2: you can't you have to be anthropocentric. You cannot well, be anthropomorphic. anthropomorphic, yeah. That's right. it. I'm sorry. I screwed yes. up. Yeah. It's good to screw up those words because they're pretty <laughs> worthless. Um they're yeah, yeah. they're very destructive concepts actually. And I you know, I said, Okay, fine. Um I've learned that and um you know, it does not exactly work. It, it doesn't match anything that I see. I, I used to also, um, by that time, you know, I was in college. I was in my late teens. I, I had been a falconer and I had, you know, I had developed actual partnerships with wild animals that I had um, learned to work with. Um, it was very obvious that they, they have very, very acute perceptions. They see the world much more vividly than we do. They are um, obviously inquisitive about certain things, fearful of certain things, aggressive about certain things. They obviously have a lot of those emotions. Right, right. It's, uh, and the other thing is that science, you know, I was brought up... I have a question about that. Yeah. How can you tell the difference between animal instinct and animal culture?
1: I mean, your books make it obvious.
2: It's just very definitional. Instinct and culture, uh, instinct is what you don't have to learn and culture is what you have to learn. That's it. Right. If you if you don't do it, then you don't have that as an aspect of culture. If if you do it because you've learned it from a social group, then that is culture by definition. If you do it because it's just uh, an innate impulse and you don't have to learn it from a social group, then that's just instinct. When did science so, realize the difference? Very, well, as far as, as, far as non-human animals, very, very recently, and the The definitions of culture, most of these things, you have to be clear what your definition is for purposes of talking about it, because there are a lot of very differing definitions. For instance, there's probably 50 published definitions of culture in the various sciences, literatures. And um, I use the plural there because, you know, anthropology has, there's different kinds of anthropology and some of it, a, a lot of anthropology is focused entirely on humans. Then there's, you know, there's paleoanthropology, there's uh, primate anthropology, there's all kinds of things. But the the anthropologists who are focused entirely on humans have published in their journals definitions like, and this is literally one of them, culture is anything humans do. (laughs) Now, humans sneeze and get sick, they die, they eat, none of that is culture. And um, if aliens from another planet came here in spacecraft and were obviously much more advanced than we are and took over the world, by that definition, we would say they don't have any culture because they're not humans. And that that definition says anything humans do. So that definition is purely garbage. And uh, we need much, much better definitions that actually reflect what culture is. Now, if you're a human... You're born with an instinct for language, but you don't know any language. Your instinct lets you acquire a human-type language, and it might be Hungarian or Czechoslovakian, Vietnamese, Japanese, English, Spanish, but you have to learn that socially. So the talent or the ability to learn a language is an instinctive one. Humans in, ex- in some extreme circumstances who are never taught a language will start to develop their own kind of language, um, like isolated deaf people in places where nobody knows really? how to communicate oh, with Oh, I've them. never heard that. Yeah. Um, mostly we learn from our mothers, and this is true of uh, all cultural animals. Mostly it starts with mothers and then the social group, usually the adult social group, and then peers, and this is true for humans, it's true for elephants, chimpanzees, dolphins, other animals that have culture. Culture is the, the attractions, the habits, the traditions that are passed along socially. If they're not passed along socially, they're not culture. You may have skills and abilities uh, you know, a falcon is very, very skilled at catching prey if it gets to be an adult. But at first, they're very clumsy and they, they miss a lot and they risk starving. That, that is uh, not culture. That's just a skill that they learn based on an instinct they have to chase things. Right. That's the difference.
0: You know, when I read Beyond Words, I wrote you some fan mail after that, that you literally changed the way I look at animals, just as with Dave and that we look at them as individuals and we realize that they really are emotional, calculating, Mm -hmm. they think, and this idea of culture. And one of the things in that last section of Beyond Words, you start out with elephants and then it's wolves and dogs, and then you you end with orcas. Being here in Southeast Alaska, I've been around orcas from time to time, but it's always astonished me. And actually, I love what you called orcas in that book. You called them the C-Rex, like the T-Rex, but they basically (laughs) could destroy Anything in the ocean, these things are powerful animals. Whenever I've been around them, they've got to have some sort of culture that teaches the young not to mess with humans. We just know that. Otherwise, they snack on us in kayaks and all that. But recently, we've seen here in the news uh, in Yo, the last month, off the some Spanish of these orcas coast. off of Spain that are actually attacking boats now and ramming them. But that's got to be a learned thing, and it comes right from the mother because orcas are the only animals, as you pointed out in your book, Wait, that why, never why, leave their mother. Why
1: can't they just be pissed off at us humans? Why can't that be the reason? Well, what's going
2: on, Carl? Uh, well, no one knows exactly what's going on. As far as I know, they only did that to one boat. Have you heard? Uh,
1: yeah, I heard uh, uh, three altercations, one boat was
2: damaged. Ah, that's very interesting. Um, they They made contact with
0: three boats? They rammed one repeatedly for an Ah, hour or something like that. Okay,
2: well, that that seems to be a group that has developed this habit, and that would probably then be, you could call that a cultural kind of thing, because no other orcas have ever been known to do anything remotely like that. in in fact, Don't the
1: orcas, when they prey on humpbacks and gray whales, don't they ram the babies to disable them and and incapacitate them?
2: I don't know if they ram them. They certainly do a lot of biting. They, uh, uh, as far as I've read about how they attack them, they they bite and drag them. Um, Hmm. You know, if they're trying to kill something big, it's not a gentle operation. Well, without much
1: data, we really can't uh, comment on what's going on there. But
2: let me just say, though, that there was an orphan orca that I write about in my book, Beyond Words, and he was stuck far up a fjord in British Columbia, he couldn't hear anybody else. And he was up there for several years. And he, he, he was lonely. So he interacted with humans quite a lot. And if he wanted to play with a 40-foot sailboat, he would give it a big shove. But if he wanted to play with people in a kayak, he would give them the gentlest little tap. And it, it appeared that he he certainly knew that he could either play with or harm people. And he didn't want to harm them because he didn't harm any. You know, if he just wanted to create a lot of havoc and have a lot of fun, he could have dumped some kayaks and slapped people around. Yeah. He he did no such thing. And people actually could pet him uh, and stuff like that. You know, so this is a huge animal. They They have a tremendous awareness of their perimeter and what's going on with them. I have a friend, a scientist, Bob Pittman, who has studied orcas a lot. Right, And he told me he once was uh, on the ice in Antarctica along along the ice edge, and there were some orcas there. Uh, and he, he made a big snowball, and he threw it at one of them, and it immediately picked up a piece of ice and threw the piece of ice at him. <laughs> so you know, it knew very well what was going on. There was another another orphan which was united with its family. It was only only lost, not an orphan, a lost baby. Um, Everybody knew who it was. It was somehow separated. And this was in the waters off of Washington State. Ken Balcom was the researcher who was on the scene for that. And he was hanging out with this baby while they were calling people. They were going to put like a net pen around it and slowly drag it to its family. Cause as I said, everybody knew who it was. And that was a totally successful reunion. But while he was waiting, the, the baby seemed to want to interact with him. And, um, there was a, a piece of wood floating by or a branch or something like that. And he just decided he's going to pick it up and toss it. And the the orca started retrieving it. Now, this is like a, you know, totally wild baby orca has no previous interaction with human beings. And then he said he had the ridiculous idea of making a circle with his index finger, like roll over. And it started rolling over. So this is the level of perception yeah. That they're capable of. If you do that to an untrained dog, it will just look at you. It doesn't know what you're, what you're doing or what you mean. <laughs> Our underestimation of non humans uh, is incredibly right. profound and, and with catastrophic consequences, I would say. <laughs>
0: There was an incident here uh, near Ketchikan in 2008, a young man by the name of Ellis Miller, he was age 15 at the time, and he was swimming in the water towards shore, his parents were in a boat nearby, and they suddenly saw this V in the water, traveling at super high speed, It's just like in the horror movies, you see the, the surface wave going straight at Ellis. And they started screaming at Ellis. Ellis was swimming along. He's actually in the K-High swim team. He heard a huge boom under the water. And next thing you know, he can't hear his parents shouting, but he's almost up to the shore. It's a male orca going at him super high speed. And at the very last second, it appears that it was an aborted attack because as it came up, it made me realize at the very last second that it was a human and lifted Ellis up on his pectoral fin, and then put him on the beach. So have you heard about that incident?
2: No, not at all. That's one of the most amazing uh, orca interactions I've ever heard, but if it put him on the beach- It put him on the beach. I wouldn't say it was an aborted attack. I would say it was a rescue. And there there are stories of orcas- That's it, interesting. Um, In Beyond Words, there are two stories by two different scientists of orcas apparently bringing their dogs back to shore after the dogs tried to swim off an island following their kayaks and got lost. The people didn't realize that the dogs had had left the island looking for them. And apparently they didn't see this like the one that you're talking about with the human but apparently orcas brought the dogs to shore because in the night they they heard orcas pass by and the dogs suddenly appeared on the shore. So there's a lot of very amazing and hard to comprehend stuff going on with that particular species.
0: Yeah, you know what happened right afterwards? Apparently the entire pod of killer whales then surfaced right after Ellis was placed on the beach. They all surfaced and they all started splashing and the big male started just spy hopping repeatedly. And there's video of this. Uh-huh. Wow. I'll send it to you, it's pretty amazing. It-
2: I would love to see that. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're sort of tangling a little bit the, the idea of perception and intelligence Anyways, and emotion yes. with the idea of um, culture. But to stick with the killer whales for a moment, orcas are probably the most cultural animals besides chimpanzees and humans. In fact, maybe even a lot more than chimpanzees because they're extremely finicky about what they will consider food. And the ones that eat fish will only eat fish, and the ones that eat mammals will not touch a fish. There are others that only eat penguins. There are some that eat everything. And these are all different groups that humans have given different names. We call them types. But the basis of the difference is... A cultural basis. And the different cultures avoid one another. The fish eaters may come within a few hundred yards of mammal eaters and they, they will not interact. They avoid each other. And that's one of the most fundamental things that culture does with humans and other animals is that it Tribalism. Makes, yes. It makes individuals come together in a group that then has a group identity. So individuals clump into a group and then the groups avoid or repel or are hostile to one another. This is a thing that you see with many cultural species, and it is one of the biggest sources of the human problem.
0: So is this how the animals are speciating? So you think the orcas are speciating?
2: In the case of orcas, yes, definitely, because um, people have looked at their genetics. They have not, those types have not interbred for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh. And um, with other very cultural whales, uh, let's say sperm whales, they have clans that will, uh, individuals in a clan will socialize with any other family that belongs to the same clan. They identify that by their patterns of cliques and uh, they will avoid other clans. But they are not evolving into separate species because with them, their social structure is like elephants. The females stay together in a family, but the males leave and the males wander around. So the, the males keep the gene pool very mixed with sperm whales. With orcas, the males do not ever leave the, the family they were born to and they don't breed outside the pod that their family belongs to. So they they keep, all of it very local, whereas the sperm whale males will travel and wander around, as do male elephants.
1: Well, I might be able to take this uh, into the paleo realm. It's obvious, and through your research, that animals have consciousness and culture and theory of mind. Is there any evidence in the fossil record of previous species or animals, uh, even in the Cenozoic, that exhibited this type of behavior,
2: culture? Well, I don't. No, but I think that culture that is purely behavioral, I cannot imagine how that would leave a fossil record.
0: Well, I was thinking about this. You could have groups that are, uh, you could infer that they're fossilized together or track ways that indicate behavior. Um, there might be that kind of thing, Carl.
2: That's the only type of thing I can think of, but how you could see that that's a, a thing that involves group identity, uh, group avoidance, things like that, uh, learned behaviors, I I don't know. I It's hard to imagine. Um, that might just be one of the things that is that has been going on quite a long time. I mean, there are cultural creatures that are at least as far from us as fish that have for instance, they ha- there are a lot of fish that have spawning areas that are completely learned. They're not instinctive, and experiments have shown that if you change them up, they uh, you can you can get them to to start and and all go to a new spawning area.
0: Just by saying, "Hey, check that out over there," you get a few a of them little, them to go over it's there. It's a
2: little more formal than that. Just a little <laughs> more formal than. that. But anyway, uh, and um, certain insects, uh, some people consider certain behaviors, certain insects to be cultural, but let's just say at least fish. So that would mean that probably for, you know, 100 million years or something like that, there has been non-human culture. The animals we call dinosaurs died out something like 65 million years ago, but they, they existed for something like A hundred million
0: years, right? So yeah, they had a good long run.
2: They were here. They were here for a longer time than they've been not here. And there is a lot of very interesting stuff with them, like evidence of parental care, uh, colonial nesting. Right, that's the
0: kind of thing. Yeah,
2: and those kinds of things are that gets to be sort of like the establishment conditions for cultures. So it's possible that different groups of dinosaurs learned different things or learned. Uh, spawning areas or or nesting grounds.
1: What what animals today, for example, uh, birds that rear their young in nests, and they found dinosaurs to have nests, is that instinct or is that culture?
2: Well, there are different aspects of it that are either. Building a nest appears to be instinctive. Simply nesting, simply caring for your young appears to be instinctive in most of those animals. There are song cultures in birds. There's a lot of that, and with that goes mating preferences. Females in certain regions prefer the local song and will not be attracted to a male that is singing a dialect from outside the region. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in birds. I don't know how you would detect that in fossil record at all, but it's... Birds, you know, b- birds are the—depending on your definition, again, some people say flat out, birds are dinosaurs. They are the direct descendants of those we dinosaurs. We buy into that here.
0: We buy yeah. into that. Yeah.
2: that. I mean, that's a defensible uh, definition. Another definition is birds are the warm-blooded animals with feathers— And our words put things into categories and bins, but over the enormous sweep of evolutionary time, things happen very, very slowly, and there's a tremendous amount of overlap on a long continuum. So at some point, there were probably what we would think of instinctively as, wow, that's a dinosaur with feathers. And at other points, there are birds that nobody ever called dinosaurs
0: until a few decades ago. Right. You were uh, you're trained. Uh, your PhD is in ornithology, right, Doctor Safina?
2: It's it's in ecology. ecology it's in ecology, okay. but I studied seabirds for both my master's
0: degree and my PhD. What did that entail? What what which what ones? Were you, Yeah, what are you looking
2: at? It entailed uh, having uh, one very dirty set of clothes with a lot of (laughs) bird poop on it. Uh, I studied a a seabird called black skimmer. Mm. They are very unusual because there are three species of skimmer birds in the world. They're the only ones where the lower mandible, uh, well, the mandible, the lower bill, is longer than the upper, and they fly along a few inches above the water. That's why they're called skimmers, with the lower part of the bill, which is knife-like, in the water. When they hit a fish, they snap down and seize it. That's how fast their reflexes are. I studied their nesting for my master's degree, and then uh, in the same area, I studied common and roseate terns. But I studied, with them, I studied their foraging ecology, their relationships with the fish that they eat and with larger predatory fish that chase the small fish to the surface. And they both make the small fish available to the terns, but they also eat a lot of the small fish. So they're both enablers and competitors at the same time.
0: So you made a big turn in your life, so to speak, Turn. See, the, there's a pun there. I
2: got, it. I got it. I never heard. I never heard that. Sorry, one before. sorry.
0: Sorry. Sorry. It took a turn for the words there. But um, you did make a big shift in your career from being a research scientist toward actively trying to do something about the natural world and saving the natural world. Was there a moment in your life, in your career, Carl, where you started doing these popular books? Was it just the idea to write a book and it took off or was that your was there a big shift? What happened there?
2: Um, I, I wouldn't say there were moments or a big shift. I would say that when I was a um, freshman in college, I'm not sure, I, I read a book about Alaska, Coming Into the Country by John McPhee. Beautiful book. And yes, beautiful book. And I thought the first 75 pages of that book were about the most thrilling thing I ever read. And I thought, because I was so ignorant, I thought, I think I could do something like this someday. <laughs> I, I, I never lost that thought that I might one day try to write a book. And I had that book and a a couple of others on my desk when I was trying to figure out how you write a book. Uh, I went back to that book a lot. But also, you know, I knew from the time I was quite young that we had problems, that there were endangered species. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound good. Maybe someday I could help with that. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was so disturbing to me that when I first read it as an adolescent, I got about 30 pages in and I I couldn't look at it again for another 10 years because it literally, literally made me nauseous and I had to put it down because I thought I was going to throw up.
1: You know what the other one for me was was Farley Mowat, A Whale for the Killing?
2: Yeah, um, a Farley Mowat book called Sea of Slaughter yeah, was uh, another book that I read before I. They're life changing. They're
1: they're life changing when you read that.
2: Yeah, they're life changing is right, and I realize that books have the power as your
1: book was with us. Right, thank
2: you, <laughs> thank you very much, because I realize that books have the power to be life changing, and I aim to write potentially life changing books. But to Ray, what you said are there moments when when I was studying the turns on the ocean. I, I was also doing a lot of fishing, and I noticed the fishing was just getting worse every year. Year yeah. after year, fewer everything, fewer fish, fewer sharks, fewer turtles. Is this in the Atlantic? Yeah, off the coast of New York, actually, a Long Island where I've always lived. And I at one point, I just thought, I I cannot keep... Just studying turns while everything declines, I have to try to do something about it. So I got very, very heavily into starting to create um, fish conservation as a part of the environmental movement and got a number of the environmental groups involved in seeing that fish are wildlife too.
0: Yes, indeed.
2: They're not just commodities. They're a matter of conservation concern. We had some really big successes and a few major failures uh, this was in the 90s, but at that time, to serve to serve that cause, I wrote my first book, "Song for the Blue Ocean," and the Beautiful idea book. was to, yeah. you know, try to change, create an inflection point in, in in how everybody viewed fish and approached fish, and try to show how rotten fisheries management was, especially then. Try to build public support for total reform of how we approach the uh, the ocean. Uh, but, but what happened was when that book came out, my colleagues said, you know, this book is pretty good and, uh, we can't write this book. We can go to all the meetings with all the congressional representatives and all these people and the fisheries managers. You don't have to come to all the meetings. If you want to just write the books, the books, you know, this could be helpful if you keep doing this. So I thought,
0: yeah, yeah,
2: uh, you know, and I thought, well, I actually, I do want to keep doing this. And if you don't mind um, so that was a really clear second inflection point. The first being into fisheries policy, the second one out of fisheries policy into writing. And my first few books were very ocean oriented, very ocean focused. And my last couple of books are much broader. They circle, my last couple of books circle back to my original interest from when I was about five, six, seven, eight years old, which is what do animals do and why did they do it?
0: You know, I know that you were very instrumental in uh, fighting uh, high seas drift nets, and uh, you yeah. had some success in that field. You you were fishing as a kid, and uh, you saw these changes. i got to say, in the 37 years I've been fishing here in Alaska, I love fishing as well. And uh, I've seen changes in the ecosystem around me. Uh, yeah. You... Uh, I'm sure you've seen just radical changes in your own lifetime in the Atlantic.
2: Yes, um, both for the worse and actually there are things improving.
0: Some for the better, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I was surprised to see your PBS special on
1: the swordfish industry and the harpooning as a more sustainable way of catching swordfish. Right. I stopped eating sushi. I stopped eating maguro tuna sushi 10 years ago as a personal boycott. Uh Uh-huh. And I pretty much stopped eating sushi altogether. My favorite food of all, because there's a sushi restaurant in every city on the planet. Yeah, and they are draining the the oceans of of the world's fish.
2: So yeah, I've I've been in that main fish market in Tokyo. Me too. And all you need all you need to do is be there one time, and uh, it yeah. it is mind blowing what they eat. They
1: eat everything. And they're everything. everything. Yeah, and it's. It's miles and miles of aisles of squid and fish and cockles and you name it, it's there. Yeah. And I noticed the, the tuna room, all those giant tuna weren't giants. They were only in the two, three, four hundred pounds.
2: Yes, they're getting smaller. And you know, what's really um, kind of ridiculous. When, when I was a kid, I remember when people thought that bluefin tuna, the ones that, that can sell for a million dollars each, bluefin tuna, we, we were told, oh, you can't eat them. Oh, they taste terrible. I mean, I don't know how that. I don't know how anybody came to that conclusion. Because well,
1: wait a minute. Lobsters. Was it lobster? The same thing. Lobster
2: was a bycatch and was fed to the poor back in the Victorian era. Yes, I, I've heard. I I don't know. I never checked this out to see if it's really true. But I've read that um, domestic servants had had contracts saying that they could not be fed lobster more than three times a week. I don't know if that's true. It's a good sure. story, but. It,
1: it is true. Great book, "Secret Life of Lobsters." Read that one.
2: Yes, that is a that is a great book. Uh, lobsters were used to chum for striped bass here on this coast. But you could find lobsters under rocks at low tide. That's you know that's how super abundant they were, and that uh, they're supposed to be that super abundant. Like most things in the natural world, were super abundant.
1: So my question back to the swordfish. How much of the world's fishing industry is sustainable? That that boat seemed like they've got their act under control. And, you know, the lobster, the main lobster fisheries, they are self-regulating. They don't want to lose their catch 10 years from now. Yeah. Um, But there are so many fisheries that are the opposite. And and what do you think?
2: Have we learned? Well, there's pretty good fisheries management and some recovering species due to fisheries management in the United States, New Zealand, uh, Australia, the Falkland Islands. (laughs) Uh, That's about it. So So 20% of the world, not even. No, not even. No, not even. A lot of the rest of the world is, it, fishing is literally a nightmare. And the human rights abuses in a lot of fisheries, especially the ones that come out of Southeast Asia, have just come to light in the last five years. There's a
1: great film called Buoyancy. Have you seen that?
2: I have not seen that one. There's a, another
1: one. a Thai boy who's, uh, who thinks he's going for a job, ends up becoming a slave on a fishing boat out of Indonesia.
2: Is that a, a fictionalization or a documentary?
1: Uh, I think it's both because they said they use non-actors, whatever that means.
2: Well, there, there's definitely a documentary called Ghost Fleet. Yeah. And there's a, a big project by a guy who is a, f- a fellow in my little not-for-profit group called Ian Urbina. He's got a, he's got a he's a former New York Times reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner, and he wrote a book called The Outlaw Ocean. About the not only that the um, the slavery, but the total impunity with which people um, sometimes literally murder people on boats if they don't work hard enough or they're trying to cause trouble.
0: Carl, we recently had a guest on Peter Ward. Peter Ward's a brilliant man, at U.W. Uh, paleontologist, ammonite expert, saves the Nautilus. Great thinker, several books, but he uh, came up with a theory, the Medea hypothesis, that basically it's it's not Gaia, the Earth is not self-regulating toward beauty and harmony. That the Medea hypothesis is that Mother Earth, it's basically the mother is out to destroy us. Life is out to destroy. Life us. kills and itself. Life kills itself. It's 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 a pretty dark view, but. In your recent book, Becoming Wild, I was just reading David a quote about how, uh, and you've done this so beautifully. As a scientist turned writer, you you craft these paragraphs that I think you must learn, work a long time on these things because you put it beautifully. I,
2: I do work a long time. Yes. Thank you
0: yeah and there's there's a paragraph in there about how we are evolving toward love and beauty, and I was nearly weeping when I read that, but you also said you had a moment when you were thinking about recognizing that beauty is a huge driver in evolution, and that the hair on your arms stood up as you thought about That's that literally, Can, so tell yeah. me, take us give us some beautiful thoughts man
2: <laughs> yes well it's a little it's a little hard to rapidly encapsulate this but let me let me just bounce off the idea that life kills itself which i think is a is a very strange way to look at it we have in the universe well we have things in that we call laws of physics in the universe and the reason we call them laws of physics is they are the same throughout the entire universe the speed of light is the same gravitational forces act the same way The elements are the same elements throughout the universe. You know, there's carbon, there's hydrogen throughout the universe, subatomic particles, all the same everywhere. Things that violate the laws of physics, which theoretically, if you ask a physicist, not a biologist, if you ask a physicist, they will will say uh, it's not possible to violate the laws of physics. Those are laws of the universe, right? You know, we call them laws because they're patterns that we've discerned. One of the laws of physics is that the universe tends toward disorder, that anything you see that's ordered is actually breaking down. Things are becoming simpler, farther apart, and that kind of stuff. The whole universe seems to be doing this. There's one exception, life. Life is a self-organizing, self-perpetuating process. If you look around the universe for life, you find none. At the very very least, it's extremely rare because we've been looking and searching and we don't see any um, so if it if it is there, it is not universal, it is not one of the laws of physics because it is not the same everywhere it's not even the same everywhere on the planet earth it's something that violates the second law of thermodynamics, it does not tend toward disorder. It tends toward tremendous intricacy and order that is self-creating and self-perpetuating. And that is, according to our definition, a miracle. Life is a miracle. A miracle that basically the human mind is generally not smart enough to comprehend as a miracle. We generally take it completely for granted, and um, we do a lot of harm. Let's just put it that way. So. It would be good if we realized the exceptional miraculousness of the planet that we're on, the process that we're part of, the organic relationship among these processes. Now, getting to the beauty part, you can see that in a lot of animals, males look different than females. And we can take birds as a good example because most people know that there are a lot of male birds that are colorful while female birds are camouflaged. and uh, Or we misogynistically often say females are drab and the males are beautiful. But it is true that the males are often a lot flashier and a lot better looking. Why, why is that? If natural selection would say they would get filtered out because they're more noticeable, they're more vulnerable to predators, they should be all camouflaged like the females are camouflaged. and. I was thinking about, well, Darwin himself realized that his theory of natural selection does not account for a lot of the beauty that we see in the natural world, that this seemed uh, not accounted for by natural selection. Something else must be going on. He realized that females choose males based on their courtship displays, based on showing their fancy plumes and um, advertising their colors and their intricate song. And based on that, the females choose. So the females are always choosing the ones that according to their arbitrary sense of beauty that is considered beautiful by species A, B or C, that they're always choosing the ones that have more of that currency. That is the beauty that is the currency of that species. So I was thinking, okay, well, what about these macaws I'm studying here? The males and the females look the same, and they look like tropical fruit punch. They're, <laughs> th- none of them are camouflage. They're incredibly bright. What's going on? Well, look at all the other parrots in the New World. There are several dozen species. They're all basically in green camo, but they're all small. There are lots of things that can eat a small or medium-sized bird. There are not that many things that are going to eat something as big as a macaw. So somehow, by getting big enough to avoid most predators—they're too big for most hawks— getting big enough to avoid most predators, what happens? Both sexes explode with beauty. As though life has this inner pressure to want to be beautiful. And how does it get beautiful? It selects beauty. That's literally what happens during the courtship process— The selection is for beauty. Life is selecting for beauty itself. And it has created much of the beauty that we see in the living world.
1: But doesn't beauty in the male indicate strong? I have strong genes, so it's not necessarily an aesthetic view. It's, I will give you a strong
2: offspring. That's one part of it. But what that strength looks like is totally arbitrary and totally aesthetic. So if you're a blackbird, you show that you're healthy and vigorous by having glossy black feathers. That would not work if you're a macaw. A, a black macaw would probably be avoided. Um, a, a bird that doesn't even sing the local dialect is avoided. It's, so there there are these arbitrary aesthetics that develop within each species, and that itself Apparently forms a basis for different groups starting to speciate. When, if, if you, um, if you go back to the thinking about how different species can, how one species can split into two or three species, the, the usual dogma is they have to first be separated into two or three populations that can no longer mix. And the classic one is, Uh, finches or other birds in the Galapagos Islands, they get across some water, they can't get back. A new population is under new pressures. It might be drier on that island and they have to have a bigger, stronger beak because the seeds are harder. And eventually you get a new species out of those developments along the selection of that different space. But it's it's not the separation in space that's the fundamental factor. It's the separation of groups when it comes time to mate. And the thing that I have perceived, and this is why the hair on my arms went up, is that this arbitrary beauty causing these groups to clump together, select those that have what they consider beautiful um, and not what another group considers beautiful, can cause separation at breeding time. And this has been seen in real time with certain fish, especially fish called the African cichlids. There are fish in lakes in Africa. They're in the same lake, but there are hundreds of species very, very closely related. And how do they differ? Courtship rituals. And how do they learn the courtship ritual? By watching their parents do it, because those fish have parental care. So culturally, these fish learn a dance that is what the others of their group consider to be attractive during courtship, and they don't mate with others of other group. And and in a short period of time, evolutionarily speaking, the groups stop breeding with each other because the courtship that they prefer, that they learn from their parents, differs. And, you know,
0: if you think the kids don't want to listen to the rock and roll no more or something, you know, it's like the aesthetics it's, sense. It's shifts. like that.
2: But but if you but if you look at the aesthetics of human cultures, right. what we consider to be attractive dress, um, appealing music, these cultural things that cause cultural identity, you you go to some other continent, you know, and they have like, wow, they're wearing such weird clothes and their music sounds so weird uh you know but they think exactly the same of us and so that is the basis of of avoidance for people and misunderstanding and hostility Yeah,
0: I just sometimes wonder, Carl, if this sense of aesthetics can be equivocated with being cool somehow. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of a an intangible. This group of animals likes this, and they appreciate this sense, and they begin to separate. Is there a way to test whether or not animals are judging each other in some sort of degree of I don't know?
2: Well, it is. It's completely a judgment who you choose to be a mate with. you know, based on the vigor of uh, their song or the complexity of it, or whether it's got the right, uh, you have the right plumage and things like that. Those are judgments. Is nobody forcing anybody's hand, nobody chasing you away or forcing you to marry somebody. But I'm wondering if there's
0: some clinical test that could be I mean, surely people have tested this idea of the uh, peacock's tail and whether or not the lady...
2: Yeah, there have been experiments like that. They, you know, they they paste different feathers onto different birds. They cut the tail in half and and see how well they do. They have a huge aviary with uh, females from the local area and males from the local area and from a few hundred miles away. And the ones from a few hundred miles away sing a different dialect and the females leave and the local ones sing... And the females stay and check it out. Huh. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that the fact that they are evaluating is, uh, is totally established uh, and, and is even experimentally established. When salmon come into rivers and they change colors and they yes. develop humps and things like that. It's 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 for no other purpose than to appeal to potential mates.
0: I didn't know that. I see it happening all the time. Wait, yeah, wait. They're like
2: I didn't know that that was a display. It's completely completely a display. I thought that was the fish decaying because it's in fresh water. Mm, no, no. Those 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 sockeyes turning cherry red and the the pink salmon
0: Breeding. developing a big well, hump. Well, yeah, the big hump. Well, the bigger the hump. Color, you know, color like, me whoa. color
2: me
1: ignorant. I, I need to um, yeah. ask this question. So. I think what blows me away about your books is uh, you just don't interview people. You actually went on that swordfish boat and, and took 10 hours to get back to shore. You went to the Barongo in Uganda and you studied with Shane Jarrow in the Caribbean. I mean, you, you go to these places around the planet. And the question I have about the work you did with the chimpanzees, you've written about the violence in uh, the Barango groups there. And I wondered, they must know they're being observed by humans to some degree, and I wonder to what extent is our intrusion in their force, does that change their behavior? Could that be why they're violent? I mean, if no one's there to document that there's infanticide, how do we know it happened 100, 200, 1,000 years ago?
2: Well, th- those chimpanzees do not act like the scientific observers are changing their behavior in any way. And because I was there, I can tell you that if they hear other people somewhere in the forest, if they hear an axe, they move. They move away. If they see the researchers that they see every day, they completely ignore you. If they, if they see a human that they don't know with the researchers they see every day, They'll have a good long look at you, but they know that you're safe because you're with them. And those researchers have taken something like three to five years to get chimpanzees who at first would move away and not be seen to just go about their normal stuff. And I I watched them do a, a huge array of behavioral things, you know, everything from lying there sleeping for a few hours to having all out fights Within extremely close range. I mean, at one point, a chimpanzee actually brushed past me and touched my clothing. The body made contact with my clothing as it was going past. They have no interest in the researchers, but uh, they don't appear to change anything about what they're doing. When it's time to go to the waterhole, they go to the waterhole. When it's time to take a nap, they take a nap. When they want to play with the babies, they play with the babies. When the males are, you know, erupt into some kind of drama, it erupts and it all just seems to be totally unaffected by humans. In other places I've been, it's different. If you're in a tern colony like I was for 10 years and you're walking around checking the nests, they will recognize you and that will make them actually more aggressive because they're less and less afraid of you as you're more familiar, but you're by their nests, and they don't want you there. So they actually start to hit you more than they do if you're a stranger there. The only way to get them to settle down and to watch actual normal behavior of them is you have to get into a blind and hide. And then, and then you'll notice that this screaming, loud, noisy colony is actually a very quiet place most of the time. It's only screaming and loud and noisy because you're there and they don't want you there. So I I think I I know the difference between animals that are reacting to you and animals that are ignoring you. Those chimpanzees were ignoring us.
1: What other animals besides chimpanzees and humans commit murders within their own communities? Premeditated murder. Or do you think Um, infanticide with chimpanzees is a, is a spur of the moment
2: act? Infanticide with chimpanzees is extremely rare and, um, is probably a spur-of-the-moment thing. It, it may, well, there are a couple of things it may have to do with, it. and I, I won't even mention those because they're very speculative. But uh, chimps that know each other for 20 years, if they're male chimps and they are both ambitious social climbers, both trying to become the top-ranking male, one might kill the other in a fight and the only there there are a lot of animals where um individuals will kill animals of the same species in fights sometimes but the only ones where somebody who's been your friend for 20 years might be somebody that you decide to kill is chimpanzees and human beings those are the only two where that kind of behavior is known
1: mm. yeah you wrote Virtually all the problems chimpanzees create for themselves are caused by male aggression, driven by male obsession with male status. There you go. Toxic masculinity ruins, ruins it again.
0: Ah, wow.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? We have a lot of work to do, and the work is a lot of work to do. We have to share the knowledge that. Animals are people too. Just kidding. Well, okay. Well, to a certain extent they are. Yeah. And to a, and to a large extent, people are animals.
0: Actually, Carl, you you've not really been a fossil digging kind of guy, right?
2: All no, right. not really. I've 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 dug some fossils with fossil diggers, but no, not really.
0: Have you ever speculated about time travel, like what it was like back in any time zone? If you could actually time travel back, would you go? Is there any point in our the great history of our planet that you're curious to go to, and what would you want to see if you could time travel back?
2: Well, obviously, I, I think most people think of things like that, and obviously I have thought of that, but I have a good way of doing it, which is I go to places that are very far from any people, and some of those places are in many ways the way that they've been for millions of years. A lot of them are not, uh, even a lot of places where there are no humans and um, And yet you can get a good sense of what it was like. For instance, I was on an island in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, about 1,000 miles west of what we think of as the state of Hawaii, an island that is about three miles across and has several million seabirds of, uh, I think, 16 species on that island. And usually if you're on the shore anywhere you get the sense that, you know, your, your back is on land and you're facing outward to the ocean. In this place, every horizon is the ocean. There's no, there's no back to the land. It's all ocean. And I got a very, very strong sense there with the ocean unbelievable sound of those millions of birds and especially toward the end of the day when many of those birds come to land at the end of the day and a lot of them nest in burrows and they go to their burrows and give their you know they relieve their mates if they're um if they're incubating eggs or they take care of their chicks in the dark and at the end of the day toward sunset to watch Millions of birds stream in from every degree of the round horizon on planet Ocean. Was an unbelievable, different feeling about being alive on planet Earth, and it really, it really felt like, well, this has been going on for quite a few million years. These kinds of birds have existed. They've, they've nested on these islands, and it really was just unbelievable but i i also i get i get the same impression often when i'm fishing literally just yesterday we went to a spot about 12 miles from um the end of long island montauk uh, by yeah montauk we left montauk in the dock <laughs> we traveled about 12 miles to a place called southwest ledge on block island uh, it's it's a it's a ledge of drowned land and boulders that extends about 2 miles off the southwest tip of place called Block Island. And at first light, because it's September, the fish are starting to feel that migratory energy. Um, a lot of fish that have been there all summer, kind of quietly, they're starting to get very, very active and move, and there were fish swirling all around the surface. Um, at, just as it was light was coming up, um, they were feeding very, very aggressively. Um, some of these fish were 40 or 50-pound striped bass that we were catching and releasing, um, keeping, keeping some of the smaller ones for food. We saw all these shearwaters and gulls move in on the action. There were these little fish called half-beaks running in huge pods on the surface. We, we call that pattern running bait. And uh, then about 100 bottlenose dolphins moved in. Wow. And... You know, I, I looked over to where we had come and I could see other boats coming, but we were the first ones on that scene. And that, that you know, you could say, well, the fish populations are different because of human fishing pressure and everything else. But, yeah, but that behavior and the fact that it was happening at dawn and the fact that it was in September as the temperature here has been cooling and the migratory energy is starting to affect the animals, that is like, is like going back in time. I absolutely love that. In fact, I think I need that feeling because... Me too. I thought many times during the morning, I thought how refreshing it is with all the depressing news of this horrendous year 2020 that we're all struggling through. Wait, did I miss something? <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Dave, there's a pandemic, but I got to say, Carl, that's why I feel so lucky to live in a place like Alaska. Yeah. That Those, those pictures you just painted, that, beautiful. Thank you, man. That was the best. That was some of the best time traveling. You took us there. Thank you.
1: Carl, science is under attack, and especially the other virus of social media. People are believing opinion as truths. Sadly, it's being fed in their news feeds. And science is under attack. So what can we do? I know what you're doing. You have safinacenter.org. You are furthering the beauty of nature and conservation. I looked at the list of your blog reporters. It's an awesome crew you have under your ease. Yeah, story. they are
2: awesome. Yeah, thank you. They're they're fantastic
1: people. Yeah, and and such a wide variety of scientists and writers. Um, what can you do, and what can we do to promote that science is fact and opinion is just that somebody's opinion?
2: Well, you know, I would I would characterize it a little differently. Um, The problem is not so much a conflict of opinions. It's that people are creating lies that they're saying are true. So they're saying that these things are facts. A fact is something that exists whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not. A, A good example of a fact is that the world is getting warmer that's a fact why it's getting warmer is that people are making it get warmer now i don't like that people are getting are making it get warmer i don't like that fact i don't want it to be true it threatens everything i care about i would like to be able to make it go away by denying it but i know the difference between a fact and something that's not a fact those things are facts They exist whether I like them or not. So you have to face reality. But the problem is that there are a lot of people who are lying. They're lying intentionally. Um, And on top of that, you have the the lies create a difference of opinion that has become radicalized and virulent. For instance, just this morning on the radio, I heard that um, in a conflict that is being created over curriculum in schools, where uh, the person in the White House is saying that liberals are uh, creating educational programs that are advancing liberal politics. Somebody else said, somebody who, who is now very angry about what he perceives as that fact, I don't think that is a fact, but he perceives it as a fact because a lie about it has been perpetrated. He said he doesn't think that the liberals will get it until they're staring down the barrel of a gun. Now, we're not supposed to have our differences be settled by violence and threats of violence in America. That is what you do in a shithole country, if there is such a thing. And if that's happening here, what does that make this country? That, this is not America where you threaten people with killing them if you don't like what someone has told you they're doing, even if they're not actually doing it. So that, I think, is is part of the disease, you know, the pathology that we in this country, you know, we who are old enough to have known a much different time where not not a peaceful time. We had, you know, the tremendous upheaval of the civil rights movement, of the Vietnam War, the women's movement. Remember that? Yeah. Atomic threats, duck and cover, get under your desk. That's going to save you from the Russians. Uh, we, We did not grow up in a peaceful time. We did not grow up when everybody agreed on everything. Uh, We grew up with very, very vigorous differences of opinion and a a lot of very dramatic politics, but not people lying constantly or threatening to throw their political opponents in jail like they do in terrible dictatorships.
1: So what can we do as, as an individual not part of
2: well everyone is an individual the bad people are individuals too the worst people were only individuals they found like-minded people and they created social and political momentum we we can each do we make decisions every day about what kind of people we're going to be and we can we can each aspire to be the kinds of people we want to be find like-minded people and turn our, our passions, our, our loves, our satisfactions, and our dissatisfactions into social movements that hopefully, if they're good and true, will carry the day or at least bring us back to a place where we argue and debate things trying to get at the truth. We don't lie saying that our opinion is the truth.
1: And what animal can we aspire to that can set a shining example?
2: There are actually not only a lot of other animals, but a lot of tribal people who know how to live with the community and the group foremost in their mind. We we don't have to look too far afield to look to many of the tribal traditions, the importance of community, the, the sense that you live to serve and to share and those kinds of values, that would be a huge improvement. But unfortunately, we've devolved into a place where we don't really live in a community. We live in a in a globalized anonymous thing where and especially, as you said, you know, the, the pandemic of social media, everybody on social media can act anonymously or quasi anonymously and uh, just feel like, you know, all the limits are off and you can just react uh, and vent all your anger at somebody. This is this is not the way to serve what being human can be about. This is taking us, you know, more like being male chimpanzees who (laughs) without much thought will do anything it takes to serve their own selfish interest at times and and the the difference between how society felt when we were young even with all the upheavals and and how it feels now is is not a good trend.
0: Well, I think we all have to strive to reverse that trend Carl and you know, we do it through podcasts, we do it through humor. We do it through beautiful books like you've written, my friend. And, we uh, we so, haven't gotten yeah. to
2: too much humor today. We went to some yeah, very dark, know. you know. But <laughs> no. I would like to say also that I think I think for me, and I think probably for some people I know, being in in frequent contact with the beauty of the natural world and understanding the long, long rhythms that you know, nature is not concerned with. Oh my God, what's going to happen tomorrow? Or, How is this decision going to turn? Nature is concerned with these returning, recurring, long cycles where things happen on the order of years or centuries or millennia. The ebb and flow of the years. The, the ebb and flow of life, the circle of life. It's why I think, Ray, why you live in Ketchikan. Yeah. Um, it, it's why I do the things that I do because I need it. And without it, I would, I think I would feel the world helping, helping me to sort of deteriorate into a crass and hardened person. And that's not what I want to be. I want to be a person who continues to be as alive and as self-renewing as the world around the natural world around us.
0: Sounds like your trip out to Montauk did that for yeah. you. You
2: write, You you bring us there. You bring
1: us to those places you visit. And I'm in awe of uh, how you take me there. You're as you're as awesome as John McPhee, which, by the way, well, that's, that's what turned a, me on to geology because he writes really, beautifully
2: as well. He's an unbelievable writer. He's great. Really the greatest.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So we're amongst one of the greats there, Ray.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Carl. Uh, let's hang out sometime when Can't we all thank get to you travel enough. again. If
2: we ever can travel again, I'm be there.
0: Okay. All right.
2: all right, man. Hey, thanks a lot, Carl. It's been great talking to you. It's been a huge treat for me. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Carl.
1: Well, that was a great interview. What do you think?
0: Wow, blown away. Uh, yeah, that was cool. Mind-altering in a way, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I share that same feeling, you know? that That is what has driven my soul, is going out to places on the planet where you look around and you can't see any hint of human activity. No telephone poles, no roads. And that's why the Mojave Desert, or the desert, is my go-to place. I also love the, the tropics. Uh, I just share that same feeling and you know that makes you love nature even more
0: I thought that was very cool that the we, I associate him with living right there in the outskirts of New York City, but it was really beautiful to hear that he was out fishing and he had that experience just like he said the day before. And
1: well, have you been to Long Island? Have you been to the... Outer... Yeah, I've
0: been to Long Island. I've been way out to yeah. the end of Long Island. Yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, he was out in Montauk. And, uh, yeah, there's some really beautiful spots out that way.
1: Yeah, some great white sharks have been spotted
0: uh That's right. Out of Montauk. That's right. Yeah. 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 But, no, it was really cool. I, I knew it was, you know... He is a nature nerd. He's not a paleo nerd, but I think we, we wove it in there very nicely. And when I asked him to time travel back, he took us back to a moment of pure nature, which I was beautiful. Yeah. Just like I said, it touched you. Yeah.
1: So. You know, I still want to make sure that we retain our paleo nerdism, but a detour to nature and the natural world and, and animal life is perfect.
0: It's totally relevant, man. It's a, it, it explains... Yeah. Uh, Got to look to the past to see what we're dealing with right now. But, you know, I mean, some people say, David, you should not meet your heroes because you you learn all their foibles and all that. But, uh, you know, wait, 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 wait. Been,
1: I'm talking I've to been... you. I'm talking to you. <laughs> Ray, wait a minute. You're one of my heroes. So I'm well, talking David, to you. And
0: I was that's why I was nervous meeting you, you know, uh, too, because uh, I, I do think highly of you and your 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 so-called skills. <laughs> uh the oh, career you have with dogs. So called but so, so called <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> Anyways, man, to to meet Safina, you know, I read one a few of his books. You could write to people and reach out to them and and he is a hero of mine. And actually I after talking to him for an hour, I I respect the man even more. He yeah. just like he tells it like it is. He is a warrior for the planet, man, and he is he is still my hero. So yeah. it was so cool to talk to him.
1: Yeah. And he has uh, apparently one of your posters on his fridge, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, we know people. I know people, know people. It's really, yeah, it's pretty wild. All right, dude.
1: Well, look, that was great. And uh, we have some awesome guests coming up. Are you with me next week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm here. I hear you might be going on a trip, so you might be recording from another locality, which is going to be awesome. Maybe down where the Inland Sea, the great
0: i'm north american i'm hoping to travel to the midwest Inland we'll see sea. if we'll see if the pandemic will allow me to do it but i i have an exhibit that's closed in kansas and i want to go get my stuff so awesome we'll see awesome
1: all right ray signing off from ojai california
0: goodbye from beautiful Cape town by the sea man it's the last day of summer here maybe sun is shining barbecue weather <laughs> see you dave see you Ray. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm okay.